Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Dorm room history? I don't really know. Today is a special episode. In lieu of what we are making on the history of China with the Xiongnu, and with what I am doing for history class at Duke University for a final, I thought, why not make a podcast out of it? So, the premise is this. We were to make some sort of project, whether it be an essay or, a, in this case, a podcast, about enemies of Rome. And I began thinking, I've made this illusion in the history of China, and this will probably be on that page at some point, but that the Xiongnu, when they are defeated, and sorry if that spoils it for you who haven't listened yet, but when the Xiongnu were defeated... It would create a sort of domino effect of tribal migration that would eventually become the Hunnic problem, the Huns. Obviously, you've seen Night at the Museum, Attila the Hun, being the most famous of all of them. So, without further ado, let's talk about a very fringe consequence of the Xiongnu's defeat to the Han Dynasty. So, without further ado, episode no number, The History of China, um, Attila the Hun. In the ancient world, the disparity between people and societies was massive. Even today, if you took the worst military and put it against the United States military, yes, while the United States might win a war... Technologically, they're not that different. I mean, of course, pardon the nukes. But they're each divided into roughly the same unit size, unit structure. The command systems are usually pretty similar. And they all got guns, rifles, artillery, Kevlar. While some of it's not equal, it's very similar. But compare that to the ancient world. And that difference is ginormous. A whole civilization could pop up, dominate their spheres of influence. And I mean, with better tech, better everything, no one else on the planet would even know unless you were directly in their sphere of influence. What do I mean? Well, the Roman Empire might pop up, but no one in China is going to know about it. No one in between them besides really the Parthians is going to know about it. Central Africa is really not going to know about it. And of course, that completely negates the Americas, because all those tribes and those kingdoms and those empires will have absolutely no idea. And I say this on my show, and I'm probably going to get docked points if I ever submitted this to the teacher. But as you know, my opinion is clear. The ancient Chinese were simply playing in a different league. Europe oftentimes, and this includes the Middle Ages, so pardon me, but Europe oftentimes, for most of history, is like double-A baseball. But the big leagues, the big leagues are in East Asia. And if you listen to my show, I've gone over the points. I mean, for one example, in 300 BC, you had hundreds of thousands of men in one army, and they're using iron crossbows a staple of the European military experience almost, what, a thousand years later? 
But yeah, you know from my show that the Xiongnu were a massive problem for the Han Chinese. Now, the Xiongnu, for their part, are a steppe nomadic people. And actually, I used the word people incorrectly. The Xiongnu were a tribal confederation of steppe nomads. The reason why that you don't have 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 Genghis Khans or 30 Xiongnu's is because these weren't one people. They were several tribes that every now and then would join forces. And only then, when those forces were joined, did they become the formidable force that, that, well, that they ended up becoming. In 119 BC, the Han Dynasty, under General Wei Qing, beat the Xiongnu at the Battle of Mo Bay. Now, this battle didn't necessarily end the Xiongnu, but it effectively ended them as a legitimate threat to the Han Dynasty. General Ho Chu Bing to the east went all the way up to Siberia, pushing those tribes out if he didn't just upright and kill them, and Wei Qing to the west destroyed them. Beat the Chanyu, which is the Xiongnu version of a Khan. And this sent the Xiongnu out of their lands into, well, Siberia, the steppe, the northern steppe. And if you know anything about geography, you know, the steppe is not an awesome place. It's actually the opposite of awesome. It's rugged. It's barren. And that's why, really, nomadic culture thrives there. But when the Xiongnu went so far north that they were in virtually inhospitable territory, they did what any peoples do. They looked to where the grass is greener. So in 119 BC, this starts. And the Xiongnu, well, part of the Xiongnu, not all of them, a small portion begin to start moving west. Now some move south and give problems to the Indian empires. I mean the ones in actual India. Don't worry, Columbus did not write this show. Some went back east, some went north. But a group went west. And long story short, they pop out of the Ural Mountains, they pop out of the Caucasus, and they're the Huns. Some 500 years later. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about that. So you know what? Let's discuss that theory. So the ethnic background of the Huns, and they are a lot of mythology. There's a lot of mythology wrapped up around the Huns, especially in Western culture. Because the Huns, for one, were different. They weren't Germanic. There aren't countries with their names named after this tribe. They weren't culturally similar enough to the barbarians for the Romans to have any idea what they were dealing with. So, like the ancient Mongolians, or the Xiongnu, or the Huns, they were not one people. And I know I keep saying that, but that is so important to understand these people. They're not just a barbarian horde of like-minded Huns connected to Attila because they are all one people from the steppe. No. There's a reason why they're not called the Xiongnu. And there's a reason why, if you read a history book, Genghis Khan is referred to as the leader of the Tartars. The Tartars were just a tribe that they took over. They absorb. So, after 500 years or so of slow movement, the Huns have absorbed other tribes. They've absorbed other peoples. 
So they're not just the Xiongnu in Europe. They are the Xiongnu, you know, where the Xiongnu Foundation ended up in Europe. So when they showed up in the 400s, Rome was not the Rome we know and love. It was not Julius Caesar. It was not Augustus. It was not Pax Romana. It was a Rome where the capital wasn't even in Rome. Not only that, the capital of the Western Roman Empire wasn't even in Rome. The main capital was in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and the capital of Rome, the Western Roman Empire, was Ravenna. And the story of the Huns is interesting, because you have a peoples on the down, and I'm sorry, the Roman Empire at this point had already been sacked, and the city of Rome itself had been sacked. And the Huns show up with a whole different way of fighting, because they are literally like a capsule coming from the east to the west. And yes, there was some trade, silk got traded, there's Roman coins found in China. But when I was a kid, we used to play games saying, you know, who would win, and you'd Picture two, you know, it was on Spike TV, actually. Oh, the IRA versus the Taliban, the Huns versus Templar Knights. It was all of those kind of things, and it was obviously ridiculous. But this was a time in history when an unknown peoples with unknown cultural backgrounds from a whole different sphere of the world might as well have been on their own planet, their own league, showed up in Eastern Europe. And they were the Huns. And at the same time, they were combating arguably one of the greatest empires the ancient world ever saw. For as much crap as I give it, the Roman Empire was one of the best. When the Huns show up, they are not facing the same Rome. And the Huns expedite a long and arduous process of Roman decline. I mean, effectively, the Huns come and not only themselves, but create other events indirectly that pretty much put the final nail in the coffin. So who were these people? In 434 BC, the leader of the Huns was Ruga, R-U-G-A. Now, he was on the way out, and he had no real heirs. So in 434, he left power to the sons of his brother, Mudzuk. And those sons were Bleda and Attila. Now, again, these weren't a single people. It wasn't the Hun kingdom. These were tribes of people. And so making sure you could give an effective leader power during times of succession is rare. There's a reason why the Mongolian Empire doesn't last that long. There's a reason why the Huns, spoiler alert, don't last that long. But Rugula is able to give Attila and Bleda full control of the united Han tribes. Now, at this time... The Huns had already showed up. They were dealing with Theodosius II, who was the Eastern Roman Emperor. Now, at this point, the Huns are still powerful. Obviously, there's a reason why we remember Attila, and we'll get to that. But at this point, the Huns are just a horde of angry Eastern steppe peoples who show up and begin pushing the Romans around. And another thing is that when they show up with this big horde... There's only a finite amount of space in Europe. The other tribes are also now being forced to move. The Vandals, the Goths, well, both Ostro and Visa, they're both moving. The Huns just come in from a different league, 
crush everyone in their path. And at the time of Attila's ascension, with his brother, to be in control of the Huns, the Hunnic armies have already forced out tons of different barbarians. And then when those barbarians move, they force other tribes to move. So everyone's getting jostled around. So the Eastern Romans had a plan. Pay them off. So the Huns were incredibly effective at neutralizing the Roman Empire's army. Now, yes, this was not the Roman Empire that we think of in the terms of legions that, you know, fought in the great Marcomannic Wars. The Roman army at this point was a mercenary army. It was mainly comprised of Germanic and Frankish peoples who had more or less been impressed into the military. And the Huns during this time were unstoppable. And the Romans couldn't stop them because the Huns had already created 50 other barbarian immigration problems to deal with that the Huns simply just started beating any army that came in front of them. So the Romans under Theodosius II decided that they were just going to pay. And they had some Huns in their possession. And after this initial little spat, the Huns were bought, bought off. So the Romans agreed that they would open up their markets to Hunnish traders. And then offered to pay eight solidi for each Roman prisoner. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of trade. And so obviously the Huns decided, you know what? That's not that bad. So the Huns got out of the Eastern Roman Empire and went back to the Great Hungarian Plain. Now this is interesting. So the Great Hungarian Plain is still part of the steppe. And this is sort of a prelude to the 1200s. But anyway... This is where things begin to get interesting for the Huns. They get out of Rome. They got their money and they're done. So what do the Huns do? They're bought off. And you know what? Business is business. If the Huns took the money and then reinvaded and failed, well, that was your payday. But now, well, they got paid. Maybe wait a few years and take the money again. So they decided to remain out of Rome for the foreseeable future. And then decided to invade the Sassanid Empire. But they were a little too big for their britches. They were defeated in Armenia by the Sassanids. And while they were able to get some loot out of this, because again, the Huns, while they had traitors, a lot of that was based on pillaging. They had to abandon it. And by 440, they were back to dealing with the Romans. And that just goes to show you how far Rome had fallen. Rome was so beat down and pinned down, they were willing to pay off the Huns. And yes, the Huns at the time when they were paid off, right before Attila took over, right about the same time, probably weren't the strongest. They'd been fighting intense battles. They were a little weak. Take their money, get their guys back. But in 440, after failing to take the Sassanids down, they go back to the easy pickings. The Romans. So the Treaty of 435 that they had just signed, well, it's over. Five years later, the Huns are back. So the Huns do what they do. They cross the Danube, laid waste to everything. I mean, Illyricum was not safe. It got destroyed. And they also went into Moesia. So they came in and started harassing the Eastern Roman Empire. And then this is where things begin to get weird. The Huns were too much for the Romans to deal with alone. And everyone else knew that. 
At the same time, the Vandals decided to go after Africa. They were being pushed out by the Huns, but look, the Romans are clearly preoccupied, and the Western Roman Empire is, I mean, completely failing at this point. They go and seize Africa, and they get Carthage, the Vandals. Yeah, that's where the word comes from, those guys. Oh, and to make things worse, Carthage in that area in northern Africa was the breadbasket for Rome. So as Attila the Hun and Blada decide, you know what, maybe it's time we come back and get some money out of you and harass you and pillage your people. The Vandals decide, you know, maybe it's the same for us to do that too. And at the same time, one year later, the Sassanids then invade Armenia. The Huns are the linchpin of disaster for the Roman Empire. So the, the Romans, panicking about all of this, decided to just abandon the Balkans. And instead decided that, you know what? The Balkans aren't worth it because you know what's worth it? Our breadbasket. And the Romans simply left Attila and Bleda just to do whatever they wanted. And that's what I want to talk about here a little bit too, because while this podcast is designated to understand, you know, for me, this Xiongnu splinter group 500 years later, is the fall of the Roman Empire. It wasn't one big thing, you know. Some people like to think it was sacked in 410 and that was it. Beautiful paintings from the Renaissance of it. But no. Here it is, the, the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire in particular. They're just sitting there. And they say, you know what? We either give up this huge chunk of land or we give up this one, and potentially both. But they just said, you know what? We're going to go to Sicily. We have to get our breadbasket back. The Romans were really in a position where they would never eat again. So with that, Attila and Bleda and the Huns do what you know, many think the Huns normally do, which they do. It's just pillage. So the Hun army just sacks parts of Illyricum. They pack parts of modern-day Belgrade. They go after Sirmium. And in 442, the problem gets so bad that Theodosius has to recall all of his troops who are going to stop the Vandals and then stop the Huns. So in essence, the Romans have stopped nothing. They let this get out of control. And then this is where it gets a little weird. They couldn't really beat out the Vandals. So what they started to do was just think that they could beat the Huns. The Huns say, look, we'll leave again for money. And of course, you know, the Romans still have morals. Theodosius says, no, because obviously the last time, that lasted five years, we lost a lot of money and you're still here. And in 443 BC, the thing that the West never got happened. For many barbarian peoples, the biggest impediment to them, besides, you know, organization and keeping everyone together, is walls. Walls are a big deal, but in 443, this should have been a warning for those in 1200. The Huns, these nomadic horse people, began to use battering rams and siege equipment. So Theodosius rolls up, according to Priscus, he said, quote, When we arrived at Nasus, we found the city deserted, as though it had been sacked. Only a few sick persons lay in the churches. We halted a short distance from the river in an open space. For all the ground adjacent to the bank was full of the bones of men slain in war. Yeah, how about that? Because in 1200, what essentially happened was that the Mongols themselves were terrible at siege warfare. And this is the thing about barbarians that people seem to get wrong. They're smart. 
In fact, maybe even smarter. I mean, they're ferocious warriors. But when Genghis Khan came to the scene and needed to deal with the Chinese, what did he do? He co-opted siege warfare from captured Chinese people. And then when he went to Hungary and Poland and, and dealt with the Prince of Rus, guess what? Chinese siege warfare simply was too much for these people to deal with. And here are the Huns taking siege warfare from those around them and plundering them. So the Huns get greedy here. They had free, they got essentially were given a head start. The Romans said, ah, whatever, you know, Balkans, whatever. Then said, ah, you know, we'll, we'll, they'll get stopped from the walls, we'll come back and we'll crush them. None of that happened. So then the Huns went to Constantinople. But just because they got a little good at siege engines doesn't mean they were going to stop Constantinople. To put this into perspective, the Theodosian walls are incredible. They still stand today. And in fact, they were still standing in the 1400s when the Ottomans did the impossible and breached an upgraded version of them. Outside of Constantinople, the Huns were simply too much. So what essentially ended up happening was that, yes, they were safe behind their walls. But no, they couldn't really beat the Huns. So Theodosius, realizing that, look, I can either sit here for years as my people starve, or I'll just pay them off again. So what did he do? He went and paid them off. And this time, a little more. So, this is the crazy part. Roman honor was a big thing back in the golden years of Rome, whether that's the Republic or the early Empire. But here, Theodosius had to pay extra. 6,000 Roman pounds, which is about like uh, a lot of weight. And mental conversion failed. But it's 6,000 Roman pounds of gold because he was the one that disobeyed the orders, the treaties. The Huns were already collecting a yearly tribute from the Romans. They upped that too. Oh, and six solidi for a prisoner, that's now doubled. That is insane. In the span of like eight years, Attila the Hun and his brother Bleda have clearly been the dominant party in their relationship with Rome. They invade, get bought off, invade, get bought off, invade, get bought off. While the Romans have to swallow their pride every time, up it, admit that they were the ones that broke the treaty, even though clearly it was the Huns because the Huns wanted some more loot. But they were met. But in 445, something changed. Because in 445, Bleda dies. So as the Huns are leaving, sort of, the modern-day area of Istanbul, Constantinople. Attila the Hun took control of the throne for himself. Now, it would take a couple years for much more to happen. And the histories aren't really clear. So the best primary source for all of this is Priscus. And we'll get to him. But for the next mm, five years, nothing really happens. But in 440... Attila the Hun began to wreak havoc on the West. And I mean the Western Roman Empire, which at this point, Rome had already been sacked. That's all you need to know. It was the easiest of pickings, and why would he need to go after the East? The Theodosian walls were big, and they were getting a lot of money from it to do nothing. 
So, in 450 BC into 451, Attila the Hun began to wreak havoc on the West. But again, he wasn't alone. It is reported that Franks, Lombards, I mean, anybody that wanted to join them, just joined them. And that's the thing. The, uh, the Huns seem to be this linchpin, even from when they first showed up before Attila. Their just mere presence was causing so many problems. So, what do we do? Well, the Huns simply go on a tear. They go on an absolute tear. They sack Cologne. They sack Amiens. They sack what modern-day Paris is. They sack Orleans. I mean, they simply go after everything. Trier is sacked. Metz is sacked. Strasbourg is sacked. I mean, it is nonstop. They simply just go through all of Gaul in 451. And when I say sacked, I mean they sacked. And now the person to fight these guys, these Huns, were not even Romans. The Romans at this point were so desperate that they began to convince these, you know, Visigoths to defend them. Theodoric I was the one that had to go deal with him. And I said Orleans was sacked. I was wrong. Orleans, Orleans, pardon my French. I speak Chinese. I'm sorry. But it was this fact that, you know, Attila had Franks, Burgundians, Celts. They had Lombards. And it was the Romans begging the rest of the Germanic peoples to stand up for them that should tell you everything you need to know about the ancient Romans at this point. Aetius was the one that really pushed for this. And Aetius gave the chase and eventually got their combined army to actually stop Orleans from being sacked. So Attila decided, you know what? I'm destroying the Romans. I mean, I beat the best Eastern Roman Empire soldiers. What do I do now? It's all over. So he picked a plane. He got to pick the field where they fought the Romans. And Romans, again, hardly Romans. I mean, <laughs> Theodoric I is really who's carrying the team. Aetius is carrying the team. But the two armies clashed. So it actually turns out that the Visigoth-Roman alliance is what won. Edward Gibbon agrees with that. Theodoric was killed in the fighting, but Aetius did, you know, not pursue them. But this is the best thing the Romans could get. They didn't want the Visigoths being too powerful. And Theodoric I actually died in the fighting. And at the same time, talk about luck, Attila was then in defeat. So the Romans got to feel as if they were doing something. But the next year, Attila the Hun simply returned. But this time, he was going for Italy. And so what he did is he came in 451, and there was a bad famine at the time. But Attila the Hun still marches into Italy and obviously exacerbates the famine, and in 452 just begins laying waste to northern Italy. So, but the problem is that if you live off plunder and there is a famine and you're making it worse, maybe it's time to sue for peace. But he didn't. Also, Another guy named Aetius comes over from the north and tries to box the Huns into Italy. So, the Huns are sitting there, plundering Italy, but they're doing it in a way that is not beneficial to them in the long run. The more they plunder, the more the famine gets worse, the less they end up being able to eat. So they have that going against them. On top of that, 
they're dealing with now an Eastern Roman Empire that is putting together a pretty good force and they're coming down from the north. And the Huns aren't that strong right now. They just suffered a, maybe not a defeat, but they've definitely been punched in the nose a little bit. Short, the situation is dire and Attila's not an idiot. He's the only person to really sack Italy with ever, as they say, never getting into the Po Valley. But in 453, he decides, you know what? We regrouped. It's time to go back after the east. And then a mysterious event happens. Attila dies. Now, some say he died from internal bleeding. Others say he choked. No one really knows. But in 453, this enigmatic yet terrifying character who is directly and indirectly bringing about the fall of the Roman Empire dies at a feast for a marriage, allegedly. And now the problem with steppe nomadic peoples or those derived from the steppe nomads is, as I've mentioned before, if you don't have a strong leader holding together these tribes, and now it includes Franks and Lum, it's a, you know, it's a conglomerate of people, it begins to fall apart. So in 453, the Huns begin to, you know, the breakwater had been hit and the wave is receding back into the ocean. But I wanted to understand Attila a little bit. So that was the history of Attila. He comes in, creates all these problems, derived from eastern steppe nomads, bringing you know a whole different way of warfare, steppe nomadic horse archers, swordmen. It's a whole different thing. But I wanted to read out these quotes from Priscus. Now, as I mentioned, Priscus was probably the only primary source on him. But this is what's cool. Priscus allegedly was in the same room as Attila. Because what I failed to mention earlier is that Attila, when they were paid off and given tribute, were sort of allegedly allies with the Romans. So, Priscus ended up going to a feast with Attila. Priscus says, quote, Halting there, at the place where it is around the feast, we considered it advisable to invite Edicon and the barbarians with him to dinner. The inhabitants of the place sold us sheep and oxen, which we slaughtered, and we prepared our own meal. In the course of the feast, as the barbarians lauded Attila and we lauded the emperor, you know, sort of giving smack talk to each other, Bigalus remarked that it was not fair to compare a man and a god, meaning Attila by the man and Theodosius by the god. The Huns grew excited and hot at this remark, but we turned the conversation in another direction and soothed their wounded feelings. And after dinner, when we separated, Maximin presented Edicon and Orestes with silk garments and Indian gems. So, in that just early interaction, they just get there. They're joshing each other. And that's such a cool thing to read. Because, you know, you read about the battles, the people, but here you are, the Huns, who are a problem. They're dangerous. And the Romans, for their part, while they're falling apart, are still dangerous. And they're laughing to each other that one's a man, one's a god, and one's better, you know, hyping up their leader while Attila's people are hyping up him. But then more interesting things begin to happen. Priscus remarks while he's there, he meets somebody. And he remarks that, quote, As I waited and walked up and down in front of the enclosure which surrounded the house, a man, whom from his Scythian dress I took for our barbarian, came up and addressed me in Greek with the word ser, hail. I was surprised at a Scythian speaking Greek. 
For the subjects of the Huns, swept together from various lands, speak, besides their own barbarous tongues, either Hunnic or Gothic, or, as many have commercial dealings with the Western Romans, Latin. But none of them easily speak Greek, except captives from the Thracian or Illyrian seacoast. And these least are easily known by any stranger by their torn garments and the squalor in their heads as men who have met with a reverse. End quote. Again, there is so much to unpack, and we don't have that many sources on Attila. But here he is talking about the Huns. He says it himself. There are people that are essentially swept together from various lands. They do trading with the Romans, so they speak Latin, they speak Hunnic or Gothic, because that's, you know, they're still the Huns. But here's a Scythian speaking Greek. And he says, no, it's not a prisoner, because usually when you deal with a Greek-speaking Hun there, you know, they've seen better days. These are not your stereotypical barbarians. These aren't just some steppe people who show up and are evil and kill. This is a multi-ethnic, very cosmopolitan group. Yes, do they show up and kill a lot? Yes. But they're a sophisticated people. Now, he continues on about this Scythian, and he says, quote, This man considered his new life among the Scythians better than his old life among the Romans. And the reasons he gave were as follows. The guy said, After war, the Scythians live in inactivity, enjoying what they have got, and not at all or very little harassed. The Romans, on the other hand, are in the first place very liable to perish in war, as they have to rest their hopes of safety on others, and are not allowed, on account of their tyrants, to use arms. End quote. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but this is just incredible. I, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps reading this. This is a Scythian man, which is another steppe nomadic peoples, who used to live amongst the Romans, but then sort of said, you know what? I like the idea of being with the Huns. That's what's happening now, by the way. People don't want to be Roman citizens. They want to be Huns. And he says, look, like in the Scythian army, you know, we take stuff. We, yeah, we plunder. But after we're done doing that, we just chill out. No one harasses us. I get to enjoy what I've taken. He then makes the point, which is incredible, that yeah, the Roman army's terrible. If I was with them, I'd probably die. And on top of that, they're using foreigners. Can't even trust them. They're using auxiliary and military forces that are comprised entirely of mercenaries. You don't want that. And another big thing, which I'm not going to get into this, but the arms debate. <laughs> After war, the Romans want you to give up their arms again, because what are the Romans going to do? Stop you if you have a knife or a sword or an army? Of course not. They're liable to perish in war. But this is the part where it begins to get fun. Because they get invited into this tent. I'm going to set the scene for you. They get invited to, actually, no, it was a villa. They get invited to this villa, and Attila's there. And I'm just going to read this quote out, and we'll break it down from there. It's a long one, so bear with me. But Priscus, this first-hand account, says, quote, When we returned to our tent, the father of Orestes came with an invitation from Attila for both us to a banquet at three o'clock. When the hour arrived, we went to the palace along with the embassy from the Western Romans, and stood on the threshold of the hall in the presence of Attila. The cupbearers gave us a cup, according to the national custom, that we might pray before we sat down. Having tasted the cup, we proceeded to take our seats. 
All the chairs were ranged along the walls of the room on either side. Attila sat in the middle on a couch. A second couch was set behind him, and from its steps led up to his bed, which was covered with linen sheets and wrought coverlets for ornament, such as Greeks and Romans used to deck bridal beds. The places on the right of Attila were held in chief honor. Those on the left where he sat were only second. And this is the cool part. He begins to discuss the way they deal with Attila. In this conversation, I know I'm running out of time here before this episode becomes crazy. And he says this about Attila. They're having a great meal, by the way. Things are going well. People are laughing. He remarks that everyone's talking in different languages. It's very cosmopolitan. But he says, quote, Attila, however, remained immovable and of changing continents, nor by word or act did he betray anything approaching to a smile or merriment except at the entry of Ernest, his youngest son, whom he pulled by the cheek and gazed upon him with a calm look of satisfaction. I was surprised that he made so much of this son and neglected his other children, but a barbarian who sat beside me in New Latin, bidding me not revia, what he told gave me to understand that prophets had forewarned Attila that his race would fall, but would be restored by this boy. When the night had advanced, we retired from the banquet, not wishing to assist further at the potations. End quote. Prophetic stuff. Attila's race would be over a few years after this. His son would not be able to salvage it, though, in the end. But that's who Attila was. That's who the Huns were. Yes, he had that stereotypical never smiling, never flinching, but he's there, you know, pulling the cheek of his son in a loving manner. Was it out of love or because he thought the race would be saved? No one really knows. But in the end, Attila the Hun and the Huns themselves before him helped accelerate the end of the Roman Empire. They came from the East hundreds of years before. And it's one of those things that is so interesting because it combines two separate peoples. But these were peoples that meshed together as all humans do. These weren't aliens. These were humans. You're a Scythian who's never dealt with a Hun. and You've actually been under Roman control, but you know Greek. Guess what? You're now a Hun. So thank you so much for this sidetracked episode. And thank you so much. And I'll see you all next time on the history of China, dorm room history, wherever this episode ends up.